Hey, Life Support listeners. Thanks so much for listening in and happy 2023. We're really excited to talk to Jake LeClaire this week about substance use, uh, new starts, and support that we can have um, in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones uh, around some of those changes. So again, we're talking with Jake LeClaire this week. And uh, maybe, Jake, could you introduce yourself? And that includes name, pronouns, where you're from, what you do when you're not working first, and then what you do when you are working. Sure thing. Uh, great to be here. Happy New Year, Jen, Rachel, and all the listeners. Uh, my name is Jake, and I go by the pronouns he, him, his. I live in Boise now. I've been here about two years, and I am just really excited to be in the Intermountain area. When I'm not working, the reason I'm so excited is I'm big into horses, riding horses, and I'm big into snow skiing um, in my hobbies. So this has been an awesome place to do that. Um, because um, as a work result of my own lived experience with substance use disorder and rebuilding um, an awesome family uh, through that, I am really excited about my personal life as well and the time to be connected with family members. When I am working, I uh, have a few hats I wear. Uh, I'm the executive director of my nonprofit, Emerge Group. Uh, we're focused on substance use disorder issues uh, in the Intermountain area. I offer substance use disorder and mental health counseling over in Eastern Oregon. Um, hopefully, as we get into my story, I can share a little bit about uh, my rural background. Despite spending about 20 years in big cities, I have uh, about 20 years of living in real rural areas, and I find in my heart that's still very alive and well. Uh, and so my work in Eastern Oregon is compelling to me in that way. So just really excited to talk about the fact that there is hope and help for substance use disorder. Um, and um, that anyone listening, um, both families and um, people struggling within their personal life, but also professionals um, who may think there uh, is not hope and help, that we could have a productive discussion and possibly change the minds today. Awesome. Thanks so much. Um, I'm excited about this conversation um, just because of my um, family experience. So I have some things that I'm kind of going to try to you know, focus in on and see what I can learn from you. Um, but why was helping people like recover your thing? Why did you cho choose this professionally? I struggle to say that I chose it. At times, it's a very demanding field. And I feel what's more truthful about me is that it chose me. Um, and hard as I might try at times uh, to, to find a greater purpose for myself, there just isn't. Uh, I know that when I was four and a half years old, I was growing up uh, in a town with a population of a thousand um, and our family was filled with dysfunction related to alcohol use and all of the comorbidity that comes with that. I can still feel uh, that little boy uh, just who was so compelled that there had to be a better way, right? Around and around our family went for 20 years without change and this little four and a half year old was so convinced that there had to be a better way and that what was going on with the challenges in our family and in our community related to substance use just weren't acceptable and weren't okay. Um, as I said, this problem didn't escape me. I didn't get to skip it. I didn't get a hall pass. Uh, and so I then um, in my 20s and 30s also struggled with substance challenges, uh, the way that a family system is all impacted by that. Uh, until I also uh, got to the end of my rope, that I ran out of hope. 
Um, and then I became willing to do something different and make a change. So um, that's where it all got started. Um, I can see through my life experience, I've always had a passion for healthcare. It just wasn't quite refined until the last five to 10 years uh, through the professional experiences I've had in my life. Um, and um, I have been gifted um, with certain leadership and management skills that allow me to have a um, what I feel is a pretty significant influence on others uh, to do things better. Um, and I'm deeply passionate about innovation. What gets me up out of bed every morning um, is working on new and different ideas to improve other people's lives. Well, uh, already I can tell we're going to love uh, talking with you and working with you. So that's that's great. Um, really, one of the things that, um, you know, we've talked about kind of as your expertise is around um, substance use disorder. And I think some people can think about that as kind of an out here concept, right? Like um, something that's very clinical, something that's defined as a couple of bullets on a web page. But for someone that hasn't actually experienced substance use disorder, whether it's someone's clinician, friend, family member, um, what's what's the biggest thing that you want them to know about living with a substance use disorder? I would uh, say that uh, the top of the narrative is that so much has changed in 75 years since the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous began. This is an age-old challenge, right? Not just humans, but mammals in general have been trying to find ways to numb for a long time, okay? Uh, what has changed in the last 100 or 200 years is the impact of toxic stress, trauma, um, and the way that living in our society uh, leads to it being that much more interesting or necessary to numb than it used to be. Um, so at the same time, What's also changed since about 75 years ago when Alcoholics Anonymous was started is there are so many solutions when someone's relationship with drugs, alcohol, or other numbing substances or behaviors aren't working for them anymore. Now, on a regional basis, if we double-click into this conversation a bit, what we see is in some areas of our country, there is a lot of literacy and competence with more cutting-edge, innovative ways to deal with substance use disorder. And in other parts of our country, that information just hasn't made it into the marketplace yet. I mean, we know when anything comes through the scientific pipeline, it's about 20 years from the time it's in the journals to the time it's in the marketplace and really being implemented. There's a 20-year delay. The problem is, right, that... Um, Close to a half million people a year are dying of their nicotine and tobacco use. Upwards of 400,000 are dying from their alcohol use. And with opioid overdose and poisoning, we're now over 100,000 a year who are dying. So time is also of the essence, right? There's a lot to lose. Um, and it's critical that we get uh, this information into the marketplace as soon as possible, given those death rates. I would also say this is a family issue. When someone is struggling with substance use, the whole family is impacted. And when someone is recovering from their substance use disorder, the family also has a tremendous opportunity for growth, transformation, and 
getting to a place where uh, folks are filled with peace, happiness, and um, life beyond their wildest dreams, quite frankly. Well, so so what I'm hearing is that um, probably for those who have never been through a substance use disorder, it's more complicated than you think. And family and friends and that system around that person is so important. I, I think that that really um, aligns with and resonates with a lot of the work that we do here and a lot of the partners um, that we collaborate with. So that's that's great to hear. In terms of recovery, um, what are some of the biggest barriers to recovery? Well, whether we like it or not, there is a ton of stigma about this problem. This is not a popular topic, whether it's your family and you personally or even as a professional. This is not necessarily the first thing people want to talk about. And I think that that's highly attributable to the reason why so much of the recovery community has been non-professional, spiritual, et cetera, over time. Those are incredibly valuable programs. It's just that now we have an opportunity to marry up healthcare and professionally oriented programs with them. So... If you haven't gone through it, what I want to um, emphasize today is the importance of engaging professional care. Because what a professional can do is actually look at the person in front of them and make a determination about exactly what that individual needs to get from where they are to what their goals are with changing their relationship with substance use or other addictive patterns. Where I think a lot of people get stuck is when they're talking with a non-professional. Now, maybe that's a well-meaning family member. Maybe that's even an uncle who has had an amazing recovery journey. They're only getting one person's version often of a way to change your relationship with your drug use. But the reason I advocate for getting with professional help is that a professional is able to bring all of the options to the table so that someone's goals can be matched up with um, solutions. So, I mean, in when I was saying about my family, like I know that there's been family members that have struggled and went, they, everything went well and they like, I don't know if there was personality reasons that they were able to succeed and still be sober for so many years. Um, but then there are others that just couldn't get off of that. Um, so is there things that, What's the best way that we can support um, for recovery, like the family members and, and such? Or is it on the on the individual themselves? Because I feel like it's always, it's so weird to see that, like, some people succeed very easily. And easily, I don't want to say that because I'm sure there's struggles, right? But then others just keep falling off the wagon, if you will. I get it. I love that you brought up the family component, Jen. Thanks for going there. Um and it sounds like you've experienced this firsthand quite a bit. Um, what I would say is, uh, to your question, probably a little bit of both. If the person struggling with their substance use um, doesn't have the opportunity to take accountability and responsibility for their own struggle because the family is breathing for them, that's going to be a continuous challenge for that person. And so I think... Part of the narrative over the last hundred years has had a lot to do with like, oh, it has to um, come with a catastrophic rock bottom, right? Homelessness, losing everything. 
No, not exactly. It requires enough of a bottom for the person struggling with substance use for it to get their attention. Um, and those can often, um, with the proper engagement, come way sooner than a catastrophic bottom, like losing everything. And so the main solution for the family is becoming comfortable with what they will say no to. And what they need to say no to is anything that is supporting the addiction's ability to continue its destructive path. Now, I think at the same time, it's important to get a little nuanced here and emphasize that they also must critically offer their unconditional love of the person struggling at the same time. Because I think we get it. You know, it's very traumatizing, right? It becomes this or that. I can either be and all tough love. it's hard for love. the person to figure it out, right? Like, oh, I need to help them. So I'm giving them unconditional love. So yes, but really we should be saying no. So that's, I think that's where I see the differentiating prep factors. Like you can still give them unconditional love, but you have to say no at the right times, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. An example of that. Let's take a family who has dinner each Sunday. Okay. That's a very beautiful opportunity for everyone to feel connection. Um, and let's say someone in that family is struggling with substance use. Let's say um, their substance use has escalated all the way to fentanyl use, um, which, by the way, is an opioid. I'm finding that people in the Intermountain need to be educated. Fentanyl is an opioid. Um, what I would suggest uh, to that scenario, about that scenario is... Um, that the person struggling, the way to show the unconditional love is that the person struggling with the substance use is absolutely invited to that dinner. That's the way to express the unconditional love. The way to set boundaries and start saying no to the substance use disorder is to decide what the expectations are of that person if they want to attend that invitation, right? Can they come if they're under the influence? Who can they bring? How can they behave? Maybe they can come under the influence, but certain expectations um, by the family are there about their behavior. And the key is, this is the really hard part for a lot of families, the key is for the family to start learning to communicate that clearly, assertively, consistently, the consistency, so that the addiction starts to listen to the fact that it's being told no but the person who's struggling starts to get the idea that they are still unconditionally loved and welcome. I think that that's super helpful and helps explain, you know, there's so much nuance. It seems like if you try to interpret this into your own family, right, there's complicated personalities, there's complicated dynamics. And so um, I think hearing that balance between love and boundaries is um, so critical and an awesome framework for thinking about this. Um, I think one of the other areas that can feel, for lack of a better word, really black and white for some folks and can be kind of a hot button issue is um, abstinence around um, substance use disorders. And so I'll ask you, what do you think about abstinence only programs? And then what does the data say about abstinence only programs? So I'm super led by the data. I feel it is my responsibility to represent what the science says. And we could have an offline conversation about my personal opinion. Uh, I want to say a few things. Uh, the research out of Stanford a few years ago says that Alcoholics Anonymous has helped the most number of people with the most amount of help. And so with that as a, a proxy for an abstinence-based program, 
That's pretty compelling. Okay. But the data also says that if we are going to go forward in the modernization of dealing with substance use disorder, we have got to do a better job of meeting people where they're at with goals that they are willing to work on. And that in aggregate, that is how we will get the most help to the most people. So what does that look like? For some people struggling with opioid use disorder, it is life-saving and critical that they're using medications for treatment of opioid use disorder, such as buprenorphine, at least in the beginning of their treatment plan. It's critical that each individual is seen as an individual. I would also say um, we must move from treating all substance use disorders through a pair of glasses as if they are alcohol use disorders to a world where we do recognize the individual differences in um, substance-specific disorders so that we apply specific interventions and treatment plans based on which substances are involved, right? So for example, folks with stimulant disorders, that's people who use uh, drugs like methamphetamine or cocaine, they tend to lack awareness of even having a problem, okay? The denial is a big challenge for them, okay? That's an example of how that drug impacts someone's mind who's hijacked differently than alcohol where there is a hangover every day or every, after every use. And then let's take a look at opioid use disorder. Well, what we know with opioid use disorder is there's a tremendous window to reach someone when they are between use because the condition we um, call dope sickness, which is also known as withdrawal symptoms, is a very compelling time to someone who's struggling with use disorder to become motivated for change. So Hopefully those give some examples of the importance of approaching each drug. I would say also, uh, you know, we're dealing with stronger drugs and, than we have before. Um, what it takes for someone to separate themselves from use of alcohol physiologically is very different than what it takes for someone to separate themselves from use of fentanyl. We know it's medically critical, actually, to receive detoxification from alcohol for your safety due to the seizure risk. At the same time, we know when it comes to separating yourself from opioid use disorder, there's not the same medical safety risk, but for months or even years, the way that that drug works on the mind uh, and takes time physiologically for the mind to heal from the overuse and dependence of that drug, night and day difference, right? What's, what someone's brain can do to heal from the use of drug A in 30 to 90 days is not necessarily the same timeline that someone needs to physiologically heal their brain from the use, the eat, same amount of time of use, lots and lots of use. It just takes longer with a different drug. Does that make sense? Yeah, this is, it makes total sense. And I'd never thought of it that way. And I appreciate it now a little bit more of understanding the different people in the family that had different types of substance abuse, right? They Their choice was different, right? So that the end result might have to be different for, you know, abstinence versus maybe not so much abstinence, right? Um, I guess for anyone that's listening, um, a family or friend, you know, what should they do next if they're like, you know, this is rung a bell here and I really should talk to XYZ, um, what should they do? 
Well, my recommendation is actually to link up with the awesome program being offered at Cornerstone to take advantage of a no-fee virtual care coordination. And I hope that we could put the link to those for the See Who Behavioral Health Clinic into the show notes today. I think that's an excellent way, free of charge, for someone concerned about someone else or someone who's concerned about their own substance use to get a consultation so that a professional will give you an unbiased, non-judgmental perspective on what their individual options could be. I love that because it's virtual here in Idaho. It would be available to people statewide. Uh, and it would also be really confidential and discreet um, since your provider is not going to be someone in your community. And they can fresh set of eyes to the circumstances someone's facing. That's a great suggestion. Um, I don't know why we didn't think about that, Rachel. <laughs> um, uh, but we can definitely uh, work that link um, at the bottom of the video. So thanks for that suggestion. I guess, what would you say to someone um, listening who might be struggling with it, um, substance abuse disorder now? I think it's specifically in our region, in Idaho, in the Intermountain, one message that really needs to make it out there for the, the person who's sitting there with their own substance use struggles is there is hope and help. In our rural environment, what I'm finding and learning is um, there tends to be a belief that um, change is not possible with uh, drug addictions or substance use disorders, that it's always going to be this way. Um, and, um, I, I think we have to kind of back up and just start with changing the narrative that change is possible, that, um, a few of us who are recovering out loud and publicly, um, are examples that change is possible. And if you like the idea of your life being a little more like this and a little less like how it is right now. Um, it, it starts with just uh, letting it soak that that change could be possible. Um, Jake, do you mind if I ask you a question that's not on our list? That'd be it's it's really wonderful to hear you um, kind of combine, weave together what the data says, what clinical best practices are, and your experience. Um, I, I think that that's just really incredible and powerful for, for people to hear, whether they're part of the support system or somebody living with substance use disorder. Can you talk about the power of um, working with or connecting with somebody who has lived experience um, living with a substance disorder, um, whether it's in your experience or the data or a little bit of everything? <laughs> mm. uh, the data says that uh, what we call professionally at least a warm handoff when someone with lived experience is brought for example to your bedside in the emergency room when you've had an overdose and that person who we're calling a peer who is a professional but that person also has a lived experience and becomes involved in your life what the data says is there is a 26 percent improvement in the outcomes um, that's interesting the the thing about and the beauty about involving a peer is that it does tend to be a more a vulnerable and relatable experience for both of them, um, both the person um, who's in crisis and the peer whose calling has been to provide services to people in crisis. What do I mean by that? Well, the peer, an effective peer is going to probably start the conversation with like, hey, do you want a cigarette? 
or, hey, is your car somewhere that we need to go figure out how to get it to a safe place because um, it's going to get towed and that's going to be on your mind? Uh, the peer is able to start out with like, the exact lived, what's on the mind of the person when they're in the emergency room. And for better or worse, that is not, you know, how do I have a massive transformation and make a big change in my life? It's like, uh, you know, I'm going through incredible cravings and withdrawals and I'm worried about this immediate need I have, like the car example I gave. Perfect. Thank you. And I, I just wanted to call that out because, um, Again, I think in conversations like this or when you're working directly with a peer, it just seems like that's a different type of connection and probably extremely um, critical when we think about kind of the toolbox for working with people with substance use disorder and supporting them is um, talking with somebody that's been there. So we so appreciate you talking with us, um, both in your experience as somebody who's providing services, who's received services, and just has that um, true insight and expertise into what someone's going through. So we we so appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, this was a great session. Thank you so much, Jake. I enjoyed You're it up. for sure. <laughs> Learned a lot, so that's good. <laughs> Is there anything else that um, we didn't bring up or anything that, like, man, I really wish I would have mentioned X, Y, or Z? I'd just like to wrap by um, conveying how much my heart is compelled by the impact this has on mothers. You know, the the whether and whether the mother is currently living in the crisis that someone in their life, a son or daughter who struggled with alcohol or uh, other drug use for some time, or fortunately the passing, right, when it's too late um, and this uh, chronic progressive, ultimately fatal condition has cost the mother the loss I am so sick of going to funerals and I um, am so sick of seeing the absolute heart wrenching impact that this has on mothers. Uh, and so for me, this, you know, this, this service is about supporting mothers who love sons and daughters struggling um, and moving the conversation from where it is to a place that, that it's a, a topic in the home and, um, that it's um, being uh, addressed with everything that is possible because I think um, the narrative has been about what's not possible for a really long time. There is no hope, there is no help, but the narrative has to move that there is hope and help so that I can look a mother and I and she can see that she did everything she possibly could no matter what the outcome was. Thank you for that. I think that... No, again, we talk about systems around people. A lot of times at CU, we talk about the clinical services and your primary care provider in your hospital. But I think that um, really you're getting to the heart of it and that um, people um, can be patients, but people probably more than patients um, or clients are um, parts of families and parts of those types of systems. So. Um, I really appreciate you highlighting that and reminding us to think about um, the people that we work with and serve and the people that live in our houses that way. So um, we, we so appreciate the conversation, Jake. Um, thank you so much for talking with us. And thank you to our life support listeners for listening in this week. Uh, we'll definitely link to some resources in the show notes. Um, so feel free to uh, click on those links, uh, check it out, and then also to visit the care consultation line. So 
thank you so much again. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you. (laughs) Sure. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening in. Be sure to like and follow so you don't miss out on new episodes every other Thursday. And remember, support each other with some additional life support. Thanks for listening. Life Support is a podcast developed by Sihu with the support of a variety of funders. See our show notes for more info. It's where we talk to providers, experts, and others about their experiences with health and the systems that create it. This episode was edited and produced by Anthony Leone. For more information, visit us on the web at sihu.org.